Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 26th of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, let's get stuck into our discussion this week. Emily, what's been the moment from the last seven days that you think is most significant? I guess it's more of a series of moments. So we've discussed and and written about this idea of vaccine diplomacy, right? The idea that countries are going to endear themselves to their neighbors and countries around the world by giving out vaccine. And India was one country that had been doing this really effectively. I think it was something like 60 million doses given out to countries from Britain to Djibouti. But now coronavirus cases are spiking in India, perhaps due to new variants. And so India is cutting back and saying, actually, we need, you know, we need these vaccines for Indians. This is going to have consequences. First of all, obviously, the fact that cases are spiking in India has consequences for Indians, but it will be significant, right? That it literally has global ramifications for vaccine distribution and vaccine campaigns. And we will also have to see what it means for India's vaccine diplomacy. And since you mentioned stuck, what's your moment of the last week? Thank you for that. I have to bring up the case of the container ship, the Ever Given, which ran aground in the Suez Canal in Egypt on the 23rd of March, Tuesday, and it remains stuck there. It is still stuck. Yes, it is still emphatically stuck and holding up the estimated $3 billion of world trade that travels through the canal between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea every day. And it's interesting, not just as a huge and much followed infrastructure story, but also as a as a broader symbol for how fragile interconnected global systems are and how little it takes for them to be disrupted. Um, some shipping seems to be rerouting already around the Cape of Good Hope, so around South Africa. But obviously, this is this this could have a huge disruptive effects, particularly if, as seems possible, the ship takes a long time to be moved. So I guess that's a story from the past week that may well turn into a moment of the next week as well. So let's keep an eye on that. 
Well, we're now very pleased to come on to our main discussion this week. And regular listeners will know that Italy recently had a rather dramatic change of prime minister and change of government. And so we're really, really pleased to welcome Tim Parks to talk about it. Tim is a celebrated author, essayist. He's a translator of Italian writers like Moravia, Calvino and perhaps especially relevantly for this week's conversation, Machiavelli. He also wrote an essay, an excellent essay in in this week's spring special of The New Statesman on the current mood in Italy and the latest political psychodrama. So we're really pleased to have that in this week's spring special and to have Tim on the podcast with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. So just to start off, you're based in Milan. As I understand, Italy's been in a new lockdown again for almost two weeks. Could you just give us a sense of what the mood is? Because, of course, Italy was the first major Western country to be hit by COVID-19. It's the one that's been living for the longest with it. How are people taking the new lockdown? Is sort of compliance waning? And what's the picture on the vaccine front? Certainly here in Germany, people are fed up with the the slow pace of jabs. But I'd be very keen just to hear overall how you characterise the mood in Italy at the moment. Well, it sounds like we're in line with Germany on the weariness. There's a, a general loss of direction and uh, loss of confidence. It was clear that people believed that that we were coming out of this pandemic after Christmas. And so there's a great feeling of discouragement that we now slowly gone back into a full lockdown. As for compliance, I think people have learned to basically avoid rules when they want to, and, and they do so. There's a very visible compliance on the street with masks, which are perhaps not all that all that useful, but then much less compliance, I think, when it comes to who you're supposed to meet and when. But in general, a loss of direction. On on the vaccine front, a huge amount of confusion about whether the vaccines are safe, particularly AstraZeneca, of course. And in particular, whereas one hears that in the UK, they managed actually to give the vaccine to old people first and and then to move down the age range, here, we very much ended up with different categories or corporations of teachers, lawyers, journalists, lawyers, uh, accountants getting their vaccines before the older people. So, in fact, the, the age group that has been least vaccinated is the age group between 70 and 80, amazingly. I actually I wanted to ask about this because it, I mean it's it's well under ten percent. If you look at European vaccine uptake throughout the countries, Italy is at the has vaccinated kind of the fewest between seventy and seventy nine by percentage. It's well under ten percent. Is it because they were prioritizing these different careers? Is it how did how did the elderly get so left behind in Italy's vaccine rollout? I think this is really hugely interesting. You can really understand how Italy works always by looking at this. Basically, the regions, rather than the central state, have authority when it comes to health matters, which means things are in the hands, basically, of local politicians. And as Antonio Polito in Corriere della Sera pointed out yesterday, this is a country of what the Italians call categories. That is, you have rights so far as you, insofar as you are a member of a certain group. And these groups, as indeed the prime minister himself suggested, have contractual powers at local level. So that amazingly, groups have been able to get themselves vaccinated before the old. Obviously, the problem with being over 70 is that you're retired and no longer part of a privileged group. Mm -hmm. That's the situation. And it's been, 
you know, it's not an eye opener in the sense that we all sense that that there were a series of privileges. I mean, you know, there are things like banks which offer offer better interest rates for certain categories. There are health clinics that offer better rates if if you're a university teacher or something like that. So everybody knew about this, but it's been really disgracefully evident. I was yesterday, my wife, who's, who's younger than me, went, went to be vaccinated because she's a teacher, though she's, she's only teaching online. Nobody in the queue at the vaccination center, this was in Varese, nobody in the queue was over, over 60. I don't think. It's, it's surprising because one's used to the idea that old people are something of a privileged group in, in Italian society. I, I reported from the country last summer and one of the points made to me was that people had stuck relatively rigidly or relatively, relatively disciplined way to the rules in the first lockdown out of this respect for the elderly, that it was a virus that was striking at the beloved grandparents of Italy. That doesn't seem to seem to be in place now, I suppose, because, because the choice of who gets priority is now political and a question of client groups. Yeah, this is totally fascinating. You're, of course, completely right that Italy has prided itself on this kind of huge amount of pathos and sentiment that attaches itself to the elderly. And there's been a huge insistence that the dead be respected and that there be no discussion of the fact that the the average age of death is, I think, 80 or 79 and so on and so forth. So then it comes as as something of a surprise that, that when it comes to actually saving the people who are dying, they've been rather tardy. Perhaps this this affection and attachment goes only to one's own grandparents. One doesn't want to be critical. It, it's just a, an extraordinary thing that's that's happened. Well, well, we'll continue to watch with interest what happens on the vaccine front in Italy. For now, I think let's move on to the political picture. And um, as I said, thank you very much for, for the great piece in the spring um, special, which I will, of course, link to on the, the episode page of this podcast for listeners to, to click through to. Why do we start with a general explanation of what's happened? I think listeners will have certainly noticed that Giuseppe Conte is no longer Italy's prime minister and that Mario Draghi, the former president of the European Central Bank, has stepped up to that role. They will also have noticed that this is the third government since Italy last went to the polls in 2018. Do you want to put some some flesh on those bones and sort of tell us how, how we got to, to this current state? Okay, I mean, very, very quickly, we we have a parliament elected three years ago that is really incapable of expressing a political majority in the sense that it's it's made up of parties that are so heterogeneous that it's hard to imagine them working together, particularly the party with the largest number of, of MPs or, or senators is the Movimento Cinque Stelle, the, the five-star movement, which was supposed to be a sort of anti-system, anti-Europe movement. So they amazingly formed a very bizarre coalition with the right-wing league. They shared their anti-Europeanism, I suppose. They then fell apart over questions of immigration, and partly because the league sensed that that there was a chance of winning an election since the Five Star Movement came to government with all kinds of projects for doing things like stopping the tunnel under the Alps with the the French, to blocking or stopping the huge steelworks down in Taranto, which is a cause of so much pollution and so many deaths. But when they actually got into power, they, they found themselves simply overwhelmed by warnings of the so-called spread, that is the difference in interest rates between in Italy and in Germany. And they, they basically came into line and have become 
become a party who, who simply do what they're told. In any event, they had a prime minister who had been brought in from nowhere and who nobody knew about, Conte, who was supposed to keep the League and the Five Star Movement together. And in the end, he was simply pushed out of power by a man called Matteo Renzi, who took his very tiny party out of the coalition, leaving the parliament with no government, until in the end, the president, in desperation, rather than call new elections, brought in a figure who is appreciated by Europe, Mr Draghi, of course, the ex-head of the European Bank. And at that point, amazingly, all the parties, except one, the far-right Brothers of Italy party, all the parties jumped on board. So this is a coalition that really has no political cohesion at all, which is very much in power for the pandemic and in order to get the money from Europe for the recovery fund. We remember that Italy is hoping to get 200 billion euros uh, from Europe in loans and in straight uh, subsidies. But in order to do that, it has to produce a program which Europe's willing to believe in. So Draghi is very much there to do that. But, but actually, since he's arrived, I haven't really seen any, any major change in policy. Obviously, on preparing the program for the recovery fund, he's no doubt a much safer pair of hands than Conte. But apart from that, things really haven't changed at all. So he isn't he isn't the first quote unquote technocratic prime minister to lead Italy in recent times. You have other figures like Mario Monti, who similarly came to power to to get the country out of a bind at the head of some sort of national effort. Is he different? Do you think from previous technocratic prime ministers in Italy? Because you know a lot of criticism is levelled at at the Italian political system and at the EU for 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 nudging Italians towards technocratic prime ministers. But Draghi seems to be arguably of a different calibre to, to, to some of those who've come before him. What, what, what do you think on that? Well, these technocratic prime ministers, this is a fairly recent phenomenon. It's a phenomenon of the last 10 years, and it's very much to do with the drift towards a single European state. It's evident that, that if people don't have ultimate responsibility, there's a sort, sort of infantilizing process begins. I mean, if one doesn't have responsibility, one doesn't act so responsibly. So what's happening gradually, it seems to me, is that the country is gradually drifting towards a, a situation of being, if not governed at least, its government pointed to by the EU. It is true that Draghi speaks to, to other leaders in the EU as an equal, at least on an individual level. And we were certainly hoping that, that this would make a big difference, watching him move He's clearly trying to form some kind of alliance with Macron. He relies to a certain extent on his friendship with Merkel, although, although one wonders how long that will be useful for. What has been like surprising to me, I was just watching his, um, he's just given a press conference, which I watched. There's definitely a kind of looking for someone to blame for the present situation. And the, the, the object to blame is clearly now AstraZeneca. So during this press conference, Draghi actually accused AstraZeneca, if not in name, I mean, it was clear who he was talking about, of simply selling their product four or five times over. 
And this is the kind of talk one expects from somebody like Salvini and uh, from a populist politician rather than from a man of Draghi's caliber. So I wonder what effect power is is having on him or, or not so much power, but perhaps the fear of failure or, or whatever, because an awful lot is riding on, on Draghi right now. I want to delve into that. You know, this is a figure who's well respected in Europe, connected in Europe. He has this caliber, as, as you say. Will it make a difference or will he kind of go the way of his predecessors? Well, you know, in in the end, he has to refer to an Italian parliament, and he's made that clear that parliament decides how how long he stays. Mm-hmm. And uh, the feeling of the people I've I've spoken to, and of course, one of the funny things about this period is that one speaks to very few people, and one doesn't overhear conversations in bars because because they're not open. But the people I've spoken to, various intellectuals and professionals, generally believe that that Draghi will be there until the cash arrives, and that then he will. He will meet the end that others have met. The parliament runs out in two years' time. There are technical reasons for not being able to call an election during that period because it's also a period in which the president has there has to be a new president elected by the parliament. And during that period, you can't have elections. So he's pretty much guaranteed his two years. He's got a hugely ambitious program. It was interesting hearing him speak speak today. Of, of basically setting a six-month agenda for getting the economy in the right direction. So, you know, I'm sure that he's a very safe person to have there in that regard, although not, not a person with a political vision that has been voted for by the people. On the political side, he was speaking very much about the desire for euro bonds and a, a central European bank with a, a united fiscal policy, which means moving towards obviously a federal Europe and less power for for national governments. That's his position. Hmm. I deeply suspect that he won't be there for more than the two years. Well, I have a very basic follow-up, which is, you know, he's there till the cash arrives. He's there for two years. He has this agenda. He's not a political figure. So basically, it's, it's two years to get this ambitious program through. Does the fact that it's only two years and that everybody knows it, do you think that helps or hurts him? It can't be positive. Mm-hmm. People who want to resist certain things he wants to do will know that they only have to resist it for so long. Generally, when these figures come into power, one thinks of Mario Monti, who's the most similar to Draghi, though that there was also Champi many years ago, but that was a slightly different situation. Monti had a space of maybe two months when he could pretty much do what he wanted, perhaps even less than that. And then when everybody got the feeling that the country wasn't going to to fold, he lost his power. I suspect that as we come out of the pandemic, hopefully this summer, Draghi's special powers will begin to decline because these figures are emergency figures. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. I can't miss up the opportunity, before we go on to the, the, the more long-term picture, of asking a bit about Matteo Renzi, who, as you said, was the catalyzer of, of this change. Because he's a fascinating character, this. I mean, he's still not terribly old, is he? He must be, what, about... 45 or so, former mayor of Florence, briefly prime minister, he was called a sort of Italian Blair, as I recall. 
he seems to have this immense self-belief. He, he fell out of government last time because he put a lot of his political capital in a referendum that went the wrong way, an eventuality that might resonate with some British listeners. <laughs> and then he comes back from the dead, as it were, with this, with this new party. And as you write in your piece, he's, he's sort of under a huge amount of criticism in the Italian press for this, what, what one might call a kind of an act of bravado in the middle of a national crisis, although he does seem to have had an effect. You know, he has changed the, the political landscape. I mean, how do you see, I mean, you're, you're a, a novelist, as I mentioned, as well as a, a nonfiction writer. How do you see him as a character? I mean, does he have a political future after, after the, the drama of the last few weeks? <laughs> One would have to say no at the moment, but, you know, an hour is a long time in politics and, and Renzi's actually 46, I think, so he has quite a few years in politics. He is an extraordinary figure. He is um, very, very sharp, intelligent. He's one of the very few Italians who can debate brilliantly, shooting from the hip, as it were. He had a real political vision for Italy, which was to radically reorganize the parliaments in order to to create a situation where governments could actually govern and rely on a solid, solid majority. He forced those laws through parliament constantly presenting confidence votes so that MPs who didn't want an election would be forced to vote for him. And then since there had to be a referendum on the issue, those very same people who had voted for it then campaigned against it at the referendum, which he lost. He is enormously hated. Why? He was very much loved at the beginning because he was seen as a solution, as a genuinely new figure in the same way that Blair was. And then he was loathed because he didn't play all the endless games that seemed to be required of factions within the parties and giving this to this and that to that. One is tempted to present this in a sort of Anglo-Saxon light as virtuous, but in reality here it's seen as a gesture of arrogance to not play the game. He chose some of his collaborators unwisely. He's accused of favoritism. He's been slightly accused of corruption. What is clear is that he really frightened some of the people in, as it were, the oligarchy behind the government in Italy, the big industry, the big families. And right now, he's sort of almost universally loathed. There are very few of us who have a a sneaking admiration for him. He never repents and, and never sort of steps into line. He was elected twice on huge majorities to be head of the Democratic Party, but those were majorities of voters, not of the leading party members who clearly loathed him. He was forced out of that, then he left that party to form what is really a very tiny party now with only 2 or 3% of the vote. You know, I think he may even have trouble getting back into the next parliament. But it may also be his feeling that that in the long run, someone will come knocking on his door as someone who does have a vision of what to do and has the courage of his opinions, as it were, because those people are are very hard to find these days. There's something of the Macron about him, I feel, although perhaps he was was Macron too soon. Well, I was going to say that he reminds of Obama, maybe because they were in power at the same time. And the two apparently got on quite well. But that, again, is a president, not, the not a, a prime minister. Loved, loved Obama. I remember, was it Walter Veltroni, the former Rome, mayor of Rome, who, who sort of styled himself as being a, a channel for Obama's politics in Europe? The dynamics of, of Italian politics are so different from the dynamics of American politics. It's very difficult to, to talk about 
aligning people. That Renzi had had nothing of the sort of virtuous air which hung around Obama. You mentioned at the beginning that I translated Machiavelli, and and let's remember that the the conclusion of the Prince, after all its long discussion of of different characters and how they held power and how they came to power, is that if you have the right personality for the circumstances of the moment, then you will succeed. And when the circumstances change, you won't be able to change with the circumstances and you will fail. Let's say that Macron certainly came to power at a moment when the circumstances fitted his personality to a T and all went well. When the circumstances change, they may not go well, as somebody like like Merkel is now finding. I would say the circumstances in Italy now are very unfavorable to somebody like Renzi and clearly much more favorable to, to a person like Draghi. Times change, and when times change, things will happen very, very quickly. Giorgia Meloni is, a, is an interesting character too, well, not least as a prominent women, woman politician in Italian politics for, for, for a start, but also because she's the one major figure that stands outside of this broad government led by Draghi. Her Brothers of Italy party has been rising in the polls, has to some extent eclipsed uh, the Lega and Salvini. I mean, how do you see her, her politics? First of all, in contrast with Salvini, because it seems to me that there are some sort of subtle differences of tone and approach without wanting to be drawn into punditry. I mean, how, how do you see her role in the next couple of years and, and indeed at the next election? You know, yeah, you use the, the expression major figure. And, and if you'd use that expression speaking about her a year ago, I would probably have, have smiled. And I'd have been wrong because she has emerged as someone who has a certain simply simple consistency of what she says. Like she's one of the very few politicians who hasn't constantly changed position. She stands on the nationalist right clearly right-wing parties that, that came out of the, the sort of post-fascist movimento sociale. She basically, I mean, the, the position that's most interesting is the European position, which is not complete Euroscepticism, but very much for a sort of de Gaulle vision of a Europe of nations and not for a federal Europe. And she's managed, I don't know, I think the last thing was something towards 20% of, of the vote, which in Italy is, is a major grouping. It's hard to imagine what, what could happen if she got into power together with Salvini and what's left of Berlusconi's party. Yeah. But, but that, that could happen. Then we would have to see how, how Europe would respond because it's no longer a question of, of simply having a government in Italy. It's, it's a question of a sort of duo between the government and Brussels. Italian politics is, has been spoken of as a precursor to European politics more like more widely. You know, Berlusconi was an early populist before that style of politics took hold more widely. And I wonder if Meloni, if, particularly if her ascendancy continues, ends up representing the next step for the European hard right, namely, as you say, this sort of Gaullist Europe of nations where it's not about Italexit or Nexit or Frexit or whatever, not about leaving the EU, but about pulling it to the right, pulling more mainstream parties to the right and changing it from within. Perhaps Meloni is, is a sign of where the European right is going more widely, just as Berlusconi was almost 30 years ago. Yeah, you know, this expression populist, I find it really very difficult to handle because what I'm seeing at the moment is that the, the politicians who are supposedly very serious are being very populist when it comes to, to the pandemic and so on. Meloni is not someone who, who, as far as I can see, she's been saying things like Italy first. So I suppose if that's populist, 
then so be it. But but then Draghi is also pretty much saying that at, at the moment. It seems to me that that you're talking about a group of people whose politics is not the same as right wing politics in the UK or in America, but quite simply about establishing a much more clear boundary of where power lies. Because at the moment, there's a huge confusion as to who is actually in control of what as far as power between Europe and and Italy is concerned, it seems to me. So, you know, I don't see a very, very close to Berlusconi actually at all. Berlusconi turned out to be a hugely malleable figure when push came to shove. And Salvini honestly, has been so all over the place in in recent months that the only thing one's sure of is that he doesn't want any more boats of immigrants to land on on the South Coast. And and that's about all we know about him now, frankly. You were saying just a bit ago that, you know, circumstances change and who's the right person for this set of circumstances versus that. It seems like whenever one checks in on the circumstances in Italy, it's in something (laughs) of, of a state of political crisis and chaos. So, I guess my my question is, one, is that wildly unfair of me to suggest? And two, if not, why does it seem like things are always in sort of political turmoil? Well, I think that's to a great extent. It is a caricature from a point of view of people living in a system where power is more clearly expressed Mm -hmm. in in a national government. And so when the national government changes hands, there's a feeling of great uncertainty and so on. I must say that in Italy, most people perceive as power not being held entirely by the government, but by something that is referred to as a a caste or an oligarchy or a a certain sort of inertia about the ruling classes. Again, let's remember those vaccination figures where we discover that when push comes to shove, this or that social grouping asserts itself as having privileges. So there's there's a huge continuity in Italian life. And, and as a result of that, the problem is actually to change things. So Renzi, who, who was in a fairly solid position, it seems, it seemed that he really did seem to be the man of the future, collapsed basically because he tried to change things. The real problem in Italy is not chaos. I don't, I don't think the countries that there are elements of, of disorganization. The problem is how to move from a situation of stagnation and stasis and always propping up the same old industries to move to a politics of courage and change and and willingness to reorganize and people actually changing jobs rather than staying the same one for their whole lives, you know. This is the problem. It's one of the kind of hallmarks of Italian politics, I suppose, that the impression, particularly, as you say, from the outside, of constant drama and change and instability, in some ways belies the underlying stasis. I mean, 20 or so prime ministers from the 40s to the 80s, and they're all Christian Democrat. It's sort of this curious contrast between the the furious activity on the surface and the, the stagnant water underneath. Well, yeah, if I can say, like, when one says things like Christian Democrat or when one says now of the Democratic Party, the, 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 the left-wing party, one imagines that, that one's talking about a single entity. But these parties are actually divided into very strong factions, which actually have faction leaders who then negotiate with the group. So what you're always talking about in Italy Rather than ideological groups, you're talking about groups of belonging which form around a particular person. Like Berlusconi's party is Berlusconi's party. You can't say that it has an ideology. 
And Meloni's party is becoming very much Meloni's party and Salvini's Salvini's. And none of these parties will survive their present leader in their present form. And within those parties are lots of other parties where there is a sort of padrone, it could be a man or a woman, who is the figure of reference and from whom one expects protection and, and favours and to whom one swears loyalty and so on. So that's how things function. And, and that doesn't doesn't always kind of line up with the sort of Anglo-Saxon vision of, of how modern democracy works. Well, with that, we come to a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. So we have picked a question today. We had several, and we picked a question which touches on some of the subjects that we've talked about. But I think it'd, it'd be quite useful to, to ask it directly because it's an important one. I think it's from an anonymous asker. The question is, will Draghi's ascendancy make any differences to Eurosceptics in Italy? I take that as a reference to this to this idea that, yet again, Italy has what you might call a technocratic prime minister. Does that put the ball in the court of those who, who want to push back against Europe, Meloni, Salvini, and so forth? But I'll, I'll, I'll leave it for you, Tim, to interpret it as you, as you wish. I think, really, we need, a, we need a premise here. In Italy, there is no other narrative outside of Europe. The idea of Europe occupies a position that's very close to, to a religious position or, or, or to some sort of institution as the Catholic Church might once have been. Nobody imagines a narrative of brave Italy on its own, negotiating on the world markets for vaccines and, and so on and so forth. That, that is simply not available. So when one talks about Euroscepticism, one's talking, as I mentioned earlier, about, say, Maloney's position that it should be a Europe of nations, of a de Gaulle variety, where the nations argue with each other uh, as it were, face-to-face as nations and not simply as subjects of, of Brussels. Whether Draghi will change this, I deeply suspect not. Everybody has noticed that when Draghi comes along, the spread falls, which means that, that Europe is deciding pretty much what they think about our leader. This is seen with a certain cynicism, but it's not Eurosceptic cynicism. It's the cynicism Italians have towards any form of government, which is that government is an unfortunate imposition that, alas, we need if we're going to keep going, but but not something we would have ever wished for in in a perfect world, as it were. So I I can't really imagine that Draghi is going to, to greatly change that. I do think if... The European Recovery Fund it doesn't turn up, or, or if it were to turn up and to prove to be utterly insufficient to sort out Italy's rather rather serious economic problems, then maybe some more serious questions would be asked. So just recently, some of the big papers have finally asked a few questions about about what's really been going on during the pandemic in Europe. But there are always things like we should have more Europe to avoid this. Or, you know, this was the problem of the nation states not giving a proper brief to the European Commission and so on. Just just recently, there have been some suggestions that there's something wrong with the model. But Draghi today was very much suggesting the only way forward, the only solution is a single fiscal policy, which which essentially means a single state. It seems. Yeah, very interesting. Well, let's, let's come on then to our final sec- section in which we look ahead to the next week in European and world affairs, of course. Tim, as your guest, why don't you start us off? What, what will you be looking at or paying attention to in the next in the next seven days? 
you know, I hope somebody else was going to kick off on this and then I could pretend that I'd, I'd thought of the same subject. <laughs> looking, at, looking at next week, we have, we have Easter, which is going to be, alas, in a, in a glacial lockdown. We have no major issues coming up in Italy, except the decision whether or not to open schools. And quite honestly, the only thing that somebody like me, but I think most of us here in Italy are looking forward to to next week is, has this government really lost control of this situation? Or are we going to finally see a sort of resolve about, you know, schools will be open at least up until La Scuola Media, which is age 14, or are we just going, is the muddle just going to go on and on? That, that's, I mean, that, that pretty much is really the only thing that somebody like me is looking at over the next week. And maybe also, are they really going to wield this weapon of banning exports of vaccines? Or is that just really for public consumption to make it clear that the blame for the vaccine situation doesn't lie with the government or with the European Commission. So, I mean, those, those are the issues that I'm looking at. Emily, what about you? So next week, the Biden administration will reportedly be unveiling a $3 trillion new spending infrastructure plan. And it will, so it will invest in infrastructure, education, workforce development, climate change, economic productivity. I'm going to be looking at two things specifically. First, as our guest last week, Roberto Unger, said, there's a sense in some corners that Biden has a lot of money to spend, but no vision. And I actually argued in this week's, in my column this week, that the $1.9 trillion stimulus that we that we just had, that it was, you know, it was temporary, right? We're, we're giving people money, but that it's for programs that are set to expire. This is not transformative. So will this $3 trillion plan transform or will we just be pumping money, which is, you know, arguably better than not spending money, but not it's not going to necessarily fix some of the inequities in American society. The other part of this that I think is interesting will be how various politicians in Congress fall. So Republicans are already saying, you know, don't put don't put anything that's not an infrastructure in there. We're watching you. But you also have figures like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is a Democrat who's sort of been positioning himself to play spoiler in that he's, you know, he's from West Virginia, he's more moderate for this the voting rights bill. He's been saying, well, I'm not sure. He said that he wants a huge infrastructure plan. So for this, he's, you know, he's all in. And how this debate plays out in Congress and, and who gets on the side of the three trillion, I think will be interesting. And Jeremy, what about you? I'll also be looking at what happens over Easter, particularly as Germany's sort of waiting until the currently rising infection numbers get high enough for there to be a political consensus around a new lockdown. And I imagine that over the Easter weekend with people crossing the country to be with relatives, that, that might come sooner rather than later. So I'll look out for that. Further afield and in my professional capacity, I'm interested tomorrow as we record this, so March the 27th, is Myanmar's Armed Forces Day, which commemorates the defeat of the Japanese occupation in 1945. And obviously it will be another focal point for protest against the military junta, which recently took power. The, the protests have been pushed back by some quite extreme violence from the armed forces in recent weeks. And so it's going to be another potential flashpoint and I think a gauge of how firmly the military has managed to push back the protest movement. So I'll be paying attention to that. All of which leaves only for us to say a big thank you to Tim Parks for joining us. As I mentioned, you can read his 
article in the spring special edition of the New Statesman, and his many excellent fiction and nonfiction books are available in all good bookshops online and to the extent that you can go to them offline too. So uh, Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Emily. Jeremy, thanks everybody. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. As a reminder, you can always subscribe to the World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. It's free. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So, can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.